Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA as we dig into the Word of God. Titus chapter 3, beginning verse 3, God's Word says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you would pray with me. Uh, Father, this morning as we gather, we gather not because we've been invited here by one another, although that probably started our attendance here. We gather here because we've been invited by you to worship and to know your son Jesus. And we're grateful that today, Lord, we haven't um, come here according to our own works, according to our own standing before you but the standing that we've been given is ours by grace we uh, rejoice in that and today as we remember that uh, in jesus we've been filled it's because uh, the fullness of deity dwelt in him and in him we've been filled we we're made full and so today as we worship as we hear your word we pray that you would continue to uh, lead us to that fountain to draw joy from the streams of everlasting living water and we pray it all in jesus name amen
Thank you, David, for doing our scripture and prayer this morning. I know it was short notice. It's a test that we run on people who claim to be preachers. (laughs) It's like, yes, but can you do it now? So we appreciate you doing that. This morning, we collectively will be engaging in a practice that goes back to the beginning of Christianity. We are joining 2,000 years of Christian practice this morning. We're going to be baptizing two individuals. So let's talk this morning a little bit about what baptism is, why we baptize, and why baptism is a necessity. Because if you know anything at all about Christianity, then you know that Christianity is defined by what the Bible says about it. And so our Christianity needs to be in league with, toe-to-toe with, what the Bible actually says. The Bible dictates our beliefs, our faith, and our practice. And so sometimes the Bible says things about us that are not very comfortable. Because the biblical anthropology, the biblical description of human beings is not complimentary. The biblical description of human beings is that ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we are born depraved. We're not born neutral. The Bible says we come out of the womb speaking lies. Can I get a witness from the moms in the room? Right away, kids start lying. In fact, if you've ever raised a child, you know that you don't need to teach your children how to lie how to cheat, how to be angry, how to be self-centered, how to be completely egocentric. That comes to them naturally because that is the human condition. By contrast, we read in the Bible that God is righteous and holy and just. And in order to be in his presence... In order to be with him, you have to rise to that standard, that level of holiness and righteous and justice. And you can't do it because you're the one that the Bible describes as depraved and sinful and prideful and egocentric and incapable. The Bible is replete, especially in the New Testament, with declarations of what you cannot do. Jesus walked around saying things like, no man comes to the Father. Okay, well then, if no man can come to the Father, if Paul picks that up and says, repeating what David wrote in the Psalms, or what Isaiah said in the Old Testament, saying that we ourselves never stirred ourselves up to seek God, That there's none who does good, not one. So don't start thinking you're the one. If it is true what the Bible says about us, that our best righteousness is, the times when you think you're really doing good, the times when you're really behaving well, the Bible says that's all just filthy rags. Because you're Best behavior, when compared to the holy righteousness of God, isn't even moving the needle. And yet, that's the standard. 
Jesus said while he was here on the planet. You cannot come to the Father. And then fortunately, graciously, he gave us a pathway to get to the Father. He said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Well, that's really good news. That's very gracious news. Now we know that there actually is a way to get to the Father. And the way to get to the Father is through the Son. Jesus, through his entire life, his entire ministry, through all of his teaching, he placed himself at the center of all eternity and all Christian thought. Christianity is Christocentric. That means you don't get to be in the middle. It means Christ has to be in the center. But he also said, I'm the Alpha. He's the beginning of it. He also said, I'm the Omega. He's the end of it. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end of salvation. If anybody is ever going to be saved, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. Jesus walked around saying things like, you cannot be righteous and holy enough. In fact, he said to his disciples, except your righteousness, your personal goodness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. That's the distance between us and God, and that is the vital necessity of why Christ exists to be the go-between between our depravity and inability and God's glory and holiness. When we say we're saved by Christ, we mean we're saved by Christ. That was an underline right there. I was trying to underline with my finger. Large font, big red letters, bold print. We're not just walking through this life doing pretty good. We're not just walking around being kind of neutral, tending toward goodness. We're walking around in this life being utterly depraved, fallen, dead in trespasses and sins. How much stuff can a dead man do? Nothing. Just nothing. And yet we're described as dead because of our trespasses and sins. And then Christ comes on the planet and uses words of life and living and born again and regeneration and taking out our stony heart and giving us a heart of flesh, giving us ears so we can hear, giving us eyes so that we can see. Jesus walked into a world that was full of nothing but depravity and death, and he spoke of life. And that's why anybody who ever gets to the Father has to come through Jesus Christ, and they have to be saved as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what do I mean when I say the finished work of Jesus Christ? I'm talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'm talking about the essential elements of what the gospel is. The reason Jesus came to the planet was to give his life as a ransom for many. He died and took on the brunt of the wrath of God in our place. Therefore, Paul could say, we're not appointed to wrath. Because Jesus paid that sin penalty completely for us. Did I mention completely? I mean completely. Christ is not a hypothetical savior. He didn't try to save anybody. In fact, he never tried to do anything. He accomplished what he came here to do and actually fully saved all the people that God had given him since before the foundation of the world. 
This was a plan of God, a sure plan of God, implemented by the power and the almighty authority of God in sending his son to accomplish salvation for all of his people. It's a done deal. You're saved. If you are in Christ and he is in you, you're saved. But then he said to his apostles, we're going to be reading out of Matthew 28 at this moment. I'm just going to read five verses, starting at verse 16. After his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were wondering. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus once again placing himself at the center of all religious experience, saying that all authority has been given to him. So, quick quiz. Who has all the authority? Jesus, if he has all the authority and he died for you and he shed his blood for you and he rose again for you and he changed you and he indwelt you and he sent his Holy Spirit to take up residence in you. Is there any chance he's going to lose you? No, absolutely not. Why? Because all authority is his. He has the authority to say, you're mine, you're saved. And by the way, if you've had that experience in your life, just think about how astounding that is that at some point the Lord of glory said to you, you're mine. Walked up to you, the dead, decaying, depraved, sinful person, and said, live. Why can he say that? Because he has all the authority. So based on the fact that he has all authority in heaven and earth, how are we supposed to react? What are we supposed to do? Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, knowing that he has all the authority, knowing that he's the Savior, knowing that he's the only way to God, knowing all of that, go, therefore, and make disciples from all the nations, baptizing them In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we are instructed by our Lord and Savior to make disciples and to baptize people. Now, importantly, when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, He was throwing open the door to Gentiles like me and Steve. I'm guessing the rest of you as well. Because during his three and a half year ministry, he said things like, don't go to the Gentiles. He said, go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach the kingdom of God. But after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, he then said, now go tell everyone. In fact, the three instructions were, go Baptize, teach. You don't need a better outline of why the church exists than those three words. 
We're going to the world. We're calling people. Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation. We are begging men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to their God. That is what the ministry of Christianity is. And so we go and we teach and then we baptize. Baptism is more than just a ritual. We're going to be doing more out back than just getting kids wet. Now, granted, that's going to happen, too. (laughs) Someone asked me this morning, do you think the water might be a little cold? And I said, you know, if it is, that's really only going to inconvenience two people. (laughs) So. (laughs) No, it's one of the only two ordinances that Jesus left for his church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a one-time thing. You're baptized as a public proclamation of your alignment, your affiliation with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then between now and when Christ comes again, when he returns, we take the Lord's Supper as a continual reminder that he actually did come to the planet, actually did give his life, did shed his blood on our behalf. Those are the only two ordinances that Jesus left the church and said, keep doing this. This is fundamental to why you exist. But both of them, whether we're talking about baptism or whether we're talking about the Lord's Supper, you'll notice that they both center in on, they both emphasize the finished work of Christ. They both remember what he was doing on that cross and what he was accomplishing And when he said to Telestai, it is finished, the salvation of his people was finished. The work of redemption was finished. The act at the cross was finished. Therefore, his people are saved. Therefore, we as a church baptize into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, identifying people who align themselves with the finished work of Christ and then We continually take the Lord's Supper to remember his finished work. Jesus himself said, Mark 16, 16, I'm sure you all know this. You don't have to turn there. He said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That has led some denominations and some churches to believe that baptism saves. Be very clear about this. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves Baptism doesn't wash away your sin. Jesus washed away your sin. What you're doing in the water, Simeon, is that you are aligning yourself, agreeing with the fact that Jesus himself forgave you for your sin and then raised to newness of life, demonstrating that God accepted his sacrifice, thereby saving you. It is Jesus who did all the work. Again, Christianity is Christocentric. It's all about Christ. It begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. That's why we worship him. So how do we baptize? Well, here at GCA, we immerse, as you can tell from the baptistry out in the backyard. It's full of water because we immerse. Because Baptizo, the Greek word, actually means immerse. Some words, some Greek words, 
have not so much been translated in the Bible as transliterated. In other words, they just kind of moved into the English language, like baptizo, baptize. And so you have to go back to the original definition of the word and what it means is to immerse. In fact, the New Testament Greek lexicon actually offers all these definitions for the word baptizo. First off, it is immerse or to submerge like a sunken vessel, or to clean something by dipping or submerging it to wash it, to make something clean with water, to wash yourself, to bathe, or to be overwhelmed by water. All of that language demonstrates immersion. As a young Lutheran boy growing up, I was sprinkled as a baby. I didn't know who Christ was. I didn't know anything. I didn't know my own name. And yet I was sprinkled as a baby. That, biblically speaking, is not technically baptism. We baptize professing believers. We don't profess that just because parents believe that their kids suddenly, magically are going to believe. We wait until the children themselves make a profession of Jesus Christ and then we allow them to make that public profession, and then we baptize because of the faith that they have already professed. In Acts 1.5, Jesus assures his disciples that they're going to be immersed in water, but then he uses the exact same word, baptizo, to say that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they were in the upper room, were they sprinkled with the Holy Spirit? No, of course not. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit. So as you look at the way that the word baptizo is used all the way through the Bible, it's obvious that it means to actually go under the water. In a moment, we're going to read Paul's description and definition of baptism, and he's going to liken it to our affiliation with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And for the two of you, as your father puts you under the water, that is in the likeness of the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Dying to yourself, dying to your flesh, dying to your old self. And then, after a sufficient period of time under the water... Any more than three minutes will really feel like you're affiliating with the Christ, Christ's death there. He's going to then bring you up out of the water, typifying the way that God brought Jesus up out of the grave, walking then in newness of life in the Holy Spirit of God. The most well-known baptizer in the Bible is known as John the Baptist. I mean, it's right in his name. That seems like a clue, right? But really, in the history of Israel, there were a lot of submersions. There were a lot of immersions. There were a lot of cleansings that went on. In the temple, there were a whole lot of rules about cleanliness. Clean and unclean clothing or clean and unclean foods and so when the priests would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, they first had to stop at this big brass bowl that was outside 
the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was known as the laver of cleansing. The reason it had that name was because it was polished almost like a mirror to a high sheen, and it had water in it. And before the priest could even go in and begin what they needed to accomplish on the Day of Atonement, they had to stop, look at themselves, and clean themselves up. They had to wash themselves at the labor of cleansing before they went into the holiest place. I only say all that to say Israel had lots of cleansings, lots of baptisms. The people on the Internet couldn't see that I made bunny ears at that moment, but they had a lot of baptisms and ceremonial washings that they did. But when John came on the scene baptizing, his was a baptism of repentance, which was very different. You have to understand that the Jews of his day believed that they were going to be fine. They even argued with Jesus about it and said they'd never been in bondage to any man because they were Abraham's seed. And because they were Abraham's seed, they thought that they were fine with God. They'd be right with God. When they got there, it was all going to work out because they were connected genetically with Abraham. John the Baptist comes on the scene and starts baptizing in the River Jordan, saying, you need to repent. That's the last thing the Jews thought they needed to do. So John was preparing the way, just like Isaiah said of him, he was preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And his baptism was not affiliated with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. After all, the death, burial, and resurrection hadn't even happened yet. Instead, his was a baptism of repentance. But then after his death and his burial and his resurrection, Jesus instructed his apostles that they were then to baptize according to this new pattern that we already read. We began with it in Matthew 28 that you're going to baptize in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded with you. And I think we've become so familiar, so comfortable with that formula, for lack of a better word, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we forget how truly earth-shattering that is because Jesus once again placed himself at the center of the religious universe. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a couple of things we know. There are a few things we're told, like God's sovereign. We're told God is holy and he's in charge. And we're told there's one God, the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, he is one God. Jesus walks on the planet and equates himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament and says, now when you're baptized... Baptize in the name of the Father, oh yeah. He didn't say, oh yeah. <laughs> but yes, baptize in the name of the Father, yes, of course. But then he says, and of the Son. This is brand new. This is earth shattering. He just equated himself with God Almighty and began that instruction with, all the authority is now mine. And so in keeping with his command, in keeping with his directive, we baptize in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, trusting, believing, knowing, being confident in the fact that it is the Father who chose these two people before the foundation of the world. And it is the Son who died 
to pay the sin debt that these two kids owed to God. And it is the Holy Spirit who has sealed them until the day of their full redemption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in the salvation of any individual. And that's why when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I I mentioned earlier that then when Paul starts writing to Gentiles, he describes baptism, what baptism is, why we baptize, and what it symbolizes. And I think this is vitally important. First, we have to remember, baptism doesn't save. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. But what Paul is going to describe is that baptism is an affiliation, a aligning yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is a public proclamation that is made in front of other believers, just as we're going to do today, but that it is also something that for the rest of your life, you're going to be able to look back on, know, recognize that you made this public proclamation because you understood that God saved you before the foundation of the world. He chose you back then. That he sent his son to die for you. And that you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. Here, I'll simplify it for you. I'll become less preacherly and more Uncle Jim-like. <laughs> so you two are baptismal candidates. Uh, ever done anything wrong? Yeah, it's a good thing you're nodding. Had either of you shook your head we'd have called off the baptisms. (laughs) Okay, now the whole rest of your life, you're going to have to struggle with the fact that you do wrong things, that you think wrong things, that your temper gets the best of you, that, that the world might encroach on you. You're tempted constantly by everything all the time. What are you going to hold on to? What's going to get you through this life? It can't be you. We've already established it can't be you because you have a tendency to do wrong things. What are you going to hang on to? You're going to hang on to the fact that before the foundation of the world, God wrote your names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're going to hold on to the fact that Jesus Christ died, fully accomplished, it is finished, the work that he came here to do, and that included saving you. And then, rather than leaving you to yourself... He put his Holy Spirit in you to seal you and to guide you and to govern you through the rest of your life. And while it is true that you can't be lost because of the finished work of Christ, it is also true that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so as you misbehave in this life, he's also going to correct you. But he's going to correct you by his spirit. He's going to correct you out of love. And he's going to keep you on that path that leads ultimately to his glory. Because he's the only one who can. All of that is wrapped up in today's baptism. Romans 6, 4, Paul writes, We are therefore buried with him, through baptism, into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty clear. That the same way that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, we, through baptism, reckon ourselves dying, placed under the water. And as I said, if your father holds you down there long enough, you will die. And then he'll bring you up out of the water, representing the fact that Jesus himself resurrected so we walk in newness of life. Paul repeats it in Colossians. In Colossians 2, starting at verse 9, he says... For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. That's kind of astounding. I don't have time to preach on it this morning. But in Christ, all the fullness of what God is dwells in Jesus Christ. And it dwells here in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. How are you made complete? In him. How are you forgiven? How are you saved? What do you believe? In In him. That's why your faith is in him and cannot be in yourself. And he is the head over all rule and all authority. Where did Paul get that idea? It comes from Jesus saying, all authority is given to me. Paul is simply agreeing with Jesus When Jesus said that, that all rule and all authority is not only belonging to Christ, but he is the head of it. He stands above all of it. He is, as we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, he is Lord of lords. He is king of kings. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him, and he is the head over all rule And all authority and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, so how does Paul look at baptism? He sees it obviously as our symbolic representation of his burying. We are buried in the likeness of Christ. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So the parallels are obvious. What am I stressing this morning? Here, I'll simplify We're not doing the John the Baptist baptism this morning. We're not doing the baptism of repentance that's preparing the way for the Messiah. The baptism we're doing this morning is baptism in the name of Christ and in the name of God and in the name of the Holy Spirit in the likeness of representing the fact, remembering the fact, recalling the fact that our full and complete Savior actually died, actually was buried, actually rose again, ascended into the blue, is sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who ever lives to make that kind of intercession for us. Man, we're saved people. And so as you go under the water, that will be in the likeness of Christ. As you are raised up out of the water, that is in the likeness of Christ. As you walk out your life, 
That is in the likeness of the Holy Spirit giving you new life to walk after the counsel, to walk obediently, to walk as a disciple of everything Jesus told his apostles to teach us. Simeon, you get it? Ellie, do you understand? Good. New Covenant baptism is a public proclamation of faith in Christ, identifying yourself with the death and the burial and the resurrection. The sins of all God's elect are washed away by the finished atoning work of Christ on Calvary, and Christian baptism is an obedient response to that fact. And it is a fact. Paul also says that baptism demonstrates that we're part of the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 5, Paul insists that the Christian church would only have one baptism. Because after all, there's one faith. And there's one Christ. There's one Lord and Savior. There are not many. There are not lots of options. There's one baptism. That baptism is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, I'm going to read from 4 to 6. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's no place for being immersed in any other name or by any other authority than to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Always remember that it is Jesus who saves and your baptism is a public recognition of that fact. Well, a few months ago, when Paige asked me about baptizing these two, I told her that typically what we do to begin the process is that the kids need to write me a short letter about why they want to be baptized. I mean, it is a public proclamation of their faith, which is why I'm glad that all the rest of you are here to witness it so that they have a public to witness too. But they also need to be able to demonstrate that faith and so I expect that they're going to be able to tell me why they want to be baptized. Much to their chagrin, I have those letters. <laughs> and I will read them now to you because they're actually very likable. Here's Ellie's note to me. I became a Christian when I was eight years old. I confessed that I was a sinner to God, and I repented of my sins. I believe that God is the ruler of the universe. How good is this so far? <laughs> I believe Jesus is his only son who died for us. I trust God to forgive me and love me. I could have just preached that. Why did I go through all that other stuff? There's the essence of it. So GCA, saints of God, 
Do you agree that we should baptize Ellie this morning? Agreed. All right, good. Simeon, on the other hand, <laughs> nah, he did fine. You know they're homeschooled, right? And I like the fact that they're homeschooled. I was doing school, right, Simeon? And I got in trouble for fighting with my sister. Sound familiar? <laughs> After that, I was moping, and I felt bad because I was sad for doing wrong. My mom, mom steps in with the right answers. My mom told me that to become a Christian, I needed to repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness. I asked the Lord to forgive me for my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins. I trust in the Lord because he sent his only son to die for my sins, and he takes care of me. GCA, saints of God, would you agree that today it's appropriate to baptize Simeon? Yes. Well, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take about five minutes. We're all going to meet in the backyard at the baptistry out there. And one by one, who's going first, Simeon or Ellie? Simeon's going first. I also like this very much, by the way, that Josh asked if he could be the one to actually do the immersing. And so they are going to be immersed under the water by their father. So let's all gather in the backyard. Let's all gather at the baptistry, and we will pick up there. You're excused to make your way back there. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.